Son, and Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Start uh, this morning with a prayer. Pray with me, please. Lord God Almighty, in whose name the founders of this country won liberty for themselves and for us, and lit the torch of freedom for nations then unborn, grant that we and all the peoples of this land may have grace to maintain our liberties with righteousness and peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Happy Fourth of July weekend. This is a great place to live, isn't it, for, for holidays like summer, Fourth of July. We've got a beautiful lake. And boy, does that bring people to this area. Yeah. It's wonderful for all who are visiting with us. Um, welcome to Good Shepherd. We are delighted to have you here and, and sharing this wonderful place for us in this wonderful part of, of God's creation in this beautiful lake. Very fitting that we have for today a gospel reading about people gathered at a lake. Love what God does that. By the way, your your Celtic Alleluia. Man, that's good. <laughs> Come on, do it again. <laughs> um, you know, Fourth of July, that, that for a lot is a time of family gathering. Time for family gathering, time for picnics and, and fun and, and family vacation. And, and we know how good that is, right? Yeah! Yeah! Yeah, family gathering, right? All blessings and joy. Um, but it's also it's also Fourth of July, so there's there's something kind of you know there's something patriotic about it. There's something about the struggles of past generations to give us the freedoms we have. And so we remember people today like Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We remember people like Winston Churchill. And so I was remem remembering today Winston Churchill, and I remember something that Winston Churchill said that's very important. I think very appropriate. Um, for time and family gatherings. You might remember these words. We shall fight on the beach. <laughs> we shall fight on the landing ground. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We will fight in the fields. Sounds like family togetherness, doesn't it? <laughs> family togetherness. Um, if you've ever looked at a map of, of Israel, you look at this Sea of Galilee, where, where Jesus sent so much of his time in Capernaum. And we've had last week him going across the lake in one direction, now he comes back in the other. And there's always people waiting for him. So people gathered around this because lakes are they're, they're life, right? They're full of life, they're a source of life, they're, they're a means for sustaining life. People have their livelihood associated with the lake. Um, lakes are living things. Lakes are living things. And, you know, so we've got a lot of people with us today. This is fantastic. Perhaps the lake has something to do with that, of why we, why we moved here. It is something that draws people together. It's, it's a place of life. Um, Capernaum, that's home for James and John and, and Andrew and Peter, right? It's their hometown. It's where Jesus spent a lot of his time among these friends of his. Being near that lake was at the heart of the ministry that he did. And the thing that's interesting about that lake, if you look at it, it looks like Heart. Not, not, the, not the, the, the Valentine's hearts, right? Not, not those things, but, but an actual human heart. The Sea of Galilee, look at it. Okay, look it up when you get home. It looks like a human heart. It's in the shape of a human heart. And so there is a lake that is heart-shaped, human heart-shaped, that is at the heart of his ministry, of where he gathers. It's wonderful. So we know that when he's there, 
at the heart of everything, there's going to be something profound that he's going to share with us. Something profound. So we have a story today where Jesus is in that place where so much of his ministry happened, and there is a man who comes to him in crisis. A man who comes in crisis. For all who are parents, this is the terror that we carry. That something might happen to a child. Some of us have lost children. We know exactly how heartbreaking that is. A ruler, a leader in the synagogue community, a person of some importance, a person probably known by others, a person of some reputation, a person of some standing in the community, Jairus, comes to Jesus, perhaps already having heard from others in the synagogue that this young itinerant preacher has been doing amazing things, but he seems to be troubled. He's criticizing the way things are done. He's not doing things the way they should be done. And maybe there's a little bit of hesitation of, you know, well, do you go to him or not? Well, if you do, people will perhaps talk badly about you and maybe you'll lose some of your standing in the community. But, you know, he's at a point where he'll take help anywhere he can get. His child might die. And parents will tell you, right? You'd do anything to save your child. You will risk your reputation. You'll go to the ends of the earth. And you'll throw yourself on your knees and beg that God would save your child. And that's what he's doing. And that's what he's doing. And we can see that. But I think we also, if we can, if we can really relate to that and connect to that, you know, we, we look at that and we go, well, when we're in that state of being terrified for the well-being of our child, it's hard for us to be aware of the needs of others. It's hard for us to perhaps yield what we need that somebody else might have their needs met. It's an incredibly hard thing to ask a parent to do. And so I think when, when, when Jairus comes and, and he, he finds himself with this person that somebody has told him, yeah, he seems to be a rabble-rouser. He's a little bit coloring outside the lines and, and perhaps there might be some consequences of you going to him and, and, and doing something that, that some people might disapprove of. Um, he's going to do it anyway. And he comes and he begs him. Come with me. There might still be time. Come with me. I've heard what you can do. Come with me. I think there might be time and you can save my child. Well, you know, the, the reading we have kind of interrupts this scene with this woman who appears. And actually, the way the lectionary is put together, this story of the woman showing up, you can take that out. We could have read this morning the gospel without having that story in there, and it could go simply from Jairus shows up, makes his plea, and then they leave, and Jesus follows. And he gets to Jairus' house and you have the healing. And, and, and you can read it just like that. And, and that would make a really good story in itself, wouldn't it? Just believe. Have faith. And he does. And they go with him and the little girl is saved. 
Right? That'd be a great story, a resurrection from the dead. But you see, Mark is trying to tell us something, though. He's very intentional about the information that he gives, and he's really intentional about where he places the story about this woman. This is something we call a Markin sandwich. <laughs> it is. It's called a Markin sandwich. It's where Mark takes a story, breaks it apart, and sticks another story in. And you know when you build a sandwich, what's the important part of the sandwich? The middle. Right? The middle part. Right? The middle part. That's, and, and then the outside is what holds it together. It all works together. And so Mark is trying to say, you know, there's something really important that happens in this middle part that the outer parts are informed by and reflect upon. The whole thing makes the sandwich. But it's that middle point that he's trying to say, pay attention to this. And pay attention to the contrast between the meat in the middle and the bread on the outside. Look at the contrast. So he inserts the story in there of this woman who's been ill for 12 years. How old is the child who's dying? 12. 12. That's intentional because he wants to draw your mind to the girl and the woman. And he wants you to start thinking about 12. That's connecting them. Somehow that little girl and that woman are connected. He wants you to recognize that. And he wants you to think about why that's important. Why that's important. Jairus has how many daughters? One. Think again. Think again. Okay. This woman comes to Jesus. Who is she? Jairus is a man who has standing in the community. He's a leader in the synagogue. He's known. He has a name. And he speaks. Who is this woman? What is her name? Is she accepted in the community? No, she's not. She has a disease that makes her unclean and unacceptable. She's an outsider. She's a person who, rather than having some status in the community, because of her hardship, she has become impoverished. One wealthy, established, named person who speaks, and the other one, an impoverished, no-named woman. She says something, but we don't have her words. And Jesus blesses both of them. Both of them. See, rich people have problems, you know. Right? Rich people have problems. Your wealth is not going to save you. It's not going to save you. And Jesus knows your troubles. Sometimes we kind of get the idea that, you know, well, if you're a wealthy person, everything's going to be great because you're blessed with your wealth and you can get all these things done for you that other people can't. you got your own hardships, and he knows that. He also recognizes the poor. He also recognizes the poor. And he comes to both. And he comes to both. He comes to Jairus' daughter. And the people outside, they're all weeping and wailing, and he tells them to go away. Go away. They said, well, she's not dead, she's only sleeping, and, and they laugh. They laugh. You see, if you're not going to trust, you're not going to have faith, you're not going to 
to, to, to buy in and believe and go with him, if faith doesn't lead you to follow, then don't follow. Then don't follow. He doesn't need you there. So when he actually goes in, he takes mom and dad, and he takes his disciples with him, and those are the only ones he takes with him because they're the only ones that have faith. If you're going to follow, you got to have faith. you got to believe. And if you have that faith and you believe, you will follow. And he raises the dead. He brings that little girl who had died too early back to life. But think about that woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. She's experienced death in a number of ways. In a number of ways. Not only is she socially dead because she has to live outside the community, socially dead, she is also physically dead. She's been dead for 12 years. The child just died. This woman's been dead for 12 years. And he brings both of them back to life. The name Jairus. See, I think this is another thing about Mark. When he gives people names, he also wants you to think about why is that person carrying that name. Could have been Fred, George, Bob, Shecky, Delmer, right? All these different names. But no, it's, it's Jairus. The name means Jehovah enlightens. God enlightens. Think about that. There's a character who's experiencing something about the graciousness of God, about the abundant love of God, telling them that, you know, in your crisis, yeah, I'm there for you. But you know, if there's a delay, don't panic. Don't panic. I have enough grace for everyone. But I think most people, right, if they've been in this position where you, you found the help that your child needed, you said, come on, let's go. Don't waste any time. Clear the way. And you want to get to your house so Jesus can do something to save your child's life. And this woman of no account comes up and gets in the middle of things. I think a lot of people really be disturbed by that. Trying to rush to the hospital, there's a lot of traffic, start losing your mind. Blowing your horn, driving off the side of the road, gotta get there. Gotta get there. I think that's just the way we are. We love our family so much that it's hard for us to be compassionate about other people's needs when we feel endangered in something that is that is dear to us, is perishing. <coughs> I think Jairus is probably losing his mind at that point, going, you know, get this. She's in the way. She's in the way. And yeah, the child died. The time he finished with her, they come and said, don't bother the teacher anymore. It's too late. It's too late. I wonder how, really, if something like that happened in our lives, how would we feel about that delay? And how would we really feel if, you know, we found out that the reason we didn't get the care we wanted for a loved one and they died was because those people were taking care of someone else? We'd be really, perhaps, depressed, angry, disappointed, angry at God. Remember Peter Arnett? Is the name familiar? 
He was a journalist for CNN. <laughs> and journalist for CNN. He told a story. Um, something horrible happened. He was in Israel. And there was a bombing. And there was mayhem and destruction. Broken bodies, maimed people, all kinds of death and destruction. And they rushed into this, into the scene. The security people rushed in and they closed off the area. And there's, we I mean, just imagine, there's been a bombing and it's chaos and commotion and, and, and wailing injured people all over the place and, and people needing immediate medical care. And, and they don't know if there's like, you know, people that, the perpetrators, are they there or not? So they, so they seal off the area. And you can't get in, you can't get out. And Peter Arnett said, in all that confusion and, and misery, a man approached him carrying a little girl. Figuring, you know, here's somebody that, you know, he's, he's a Westerner, he's, he's with this major news organization, they must have people who are going to come and get them out of harm's way. He was, he was thinking, right, if I, if, I can, if I can get this guy who's well-known, this journalist, to help me, I can get help for this, this broken child. So he came to Peter Arnett and, and made his plea, and, and, you know, they kind of looked around, how are we going to get out of here? You can't. They're trying to get people in to help out, and we're trying to get out. They managed to get out, thanks to CNN and, and Peter Arnett. They got out of this, this scene. And they managed to get the girl to a hospital. Said, and then they waited and waited and waited in the emergency room. There were so many injured people. They had to wait. Imagine the angst. Was it our turn? This child going to die while we're waiting for help? They finally, 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 they took the child. And not long after that, Peter Arnett said the doctor came out and told him the child's dead. Injuries were too severe, too much blood loss, didn't make it. If you've been in situations like that where some, somebody has had a family member die, a child, God forbid, die, and, and you're with them, you're probably at a loss of words. What do you say? And so um, Peter Arnett said something like, um, I am, I'm so sorry that this happened. Sorry that we couldn't have done more. Sorry for the loss of your child. And the man looked at Peter Arnett and said, that's not my child. He said, I'm an Israeli settler. That was a Palestinian child. So, you know, the day comes when all of us have to look beyond nationality and ethnicity and recognize that all these children are our sons and daughters. 
when Jairus received his daughter back from the dead, I wonder if he was true to his name that Jehovah enlightens. I wonder if he thought back to that, that commotion where he had come to Jesus and pleaded for his help and that was interrupted by a woman who has no name. By a woman who is perhaps scorned by the community, certainly excluded by the community. I wonder if you recognize after the fact that he had more than one daughter. Amen. Amen.